we can exercise ordinary control over our beliefs. Um, it's, but our doing so is constrained by the fact that our beliefs are our answer to the question of what is so. Um, so the thought is that um, our, because our beliefs are the same as our answer to the question of what is so, the ways in which we can control them in the ordinary way have, has to take that into account and is constrained by it. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 80. And this episode is with Pamela Hieronymi, who is professor of philosophy at UCLA. And Pamela's work extends in a number of different directions. So her, her writing touches on moral psychology, the philosophy of mind, ethics, action, and maybe to the extent to which questions of free will and moral responsibility can be construed as metaphysics. Her work also touches on metaphysics. And it's this latter topic that we discuss in this episode, which happens to be the subject of an upcoming book of hers entitled Minds That Matter. So this question of free will and moral responsibility, I think, is most easily laid out in a deterministic setting. So under under the assumption that our world is deterministic, which is a big assumption but just think of it like this if if some being with perfect knowledge of the world including its laws could from one state of the universe in conjunction with its knowledge of the laws predict everything that was going to happen in the future so that your actions would in a sense be determined before you were born then where does that leave room for freedom? And how does it leave room for moral responsibility? And even though at this point, it doesn't look like the world is deterministic, it's also not clear how adding randomness to the mix would really solve anything. So our, our conversation in this episode isn't really about the physics side of thing physics side of things, though we we do address this question of determinism at the beginning of the conversation. It's more about the nature of human freedom and moral responsibility. So Pamela is also a really terrific, lucid writer. And I asked if I could read a quotation from the introduction to her book. So granted that she's still writing it. It's not complete. I would just like to read this because I found it very striking and important. 
So it is worth emphasizing how important meriting consequences is in human life, how important it is that the consequences of our behavior redound to us. Creating regular relations between choices and consequences is the stuff of good parenting. And this is because understanding the relation between choice and consequences is crucial for understanding one's own agency in the world, one's sense of power and control over one's environment and future. Our sense of our own agency provides much of our sense of self, of accomplishment, and of our own capacities. To be routinely unable to affect the consequences one has in mind, or to be routinely unable to predict one's environment and one's impact upon it, provokes anxiety and depression. Those whose efforts are routinely thwarted or superseded will stop making an effort. And it's it's worth noting, though, that though this is very important psychologically, Pamela does argue against the this merited consequences view of freedom and moral responsibility, though we get into that in the episode. For now, I just hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed talking with Pamela. So... Your research uh, largely falls under the the category of moral psychology, and I actually hadn't even heard this term until relatively recently. Mm-hmm. So it's entirely possible that not all philosophers are familiar with it, and certainly not all of my listeners in the more general, intellectually curious uh, population will have heard of it. So, how do you explain? I mean, what moral psychology? is and maybe where it fits between psychology and philosophy. Yeah, great. Um it's a good question. So the the way I got into moral psychology is through my interest in uh responsibility, free will and emotions. Um but moral psychology tends to be um at the intersection of ethics, philosophy of action and philosophy of mind. Uh, and tends to, so so there are a, a decent number of people who work on topics like forgiveness or trust or resentment, um, and those are both emotions and emotions with uh, moral significance. And so uh, that kind of work will tend to uh, go under the head of moral psychology. Um, it it usually has less connection to the field of psychology than probably would be ideal. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But it's um, about the, the moral significance and more ethical questions about our states of mind is basically, basically the, the the topic. Okay. And then, relating to this connection to psychology. Uh, I saw that you've written that your work has, well, I'm quoting you now, Mm -hmm. your work has largely focused on the agency we exercise over our own attitudes, Mm -hmm. in particular over our beliefs and intentions. And I imagine that this subject matter could be approached from a variety of different directions. So uh, certainly psychoanalysis, for instance, is very interested in the distinction here between the conscious and the subconscious. And I'm sure that contemporary psychology has its own way of studying this relationship to agency and attitudes. 
So why particularly do you take an analytic philosophical approach to this subject matter? And maybe what can it tell us about our agency and attitudes that other disciplines might not be able to unearth? Great question. Um, yeah, so I'm very conscious of my lane, so to speak, and staying in it because my uh, expertise and training is not in psychology at all, um, hardly. Um, but what I do, what I do know, what I have studied a lot is questions about how we justify our actions and our attitudes to one another, uh, questions about um, rationality and justification and um, the interpersonal aspects of um, I'm not repeating myself. Uh, so I'll just stop at questions of ration, rationality and justification. Um, and I believe that those give insight into both the attitudes themselves and and the active-passive distinction. So um, the active-passive distinction in particular, you might think of that as the difference between what I do and what happens to me. Um, but it's also the difference between what I'm responsible for and what I'm not. Um, and so if you look at um, belief, for example, you can see that on the one hand, if you compare belief to an ordinary action like raising your right hand, it can seem that belief is a passive because you know you you can't believe whatever you want to. You can only believe what you think is true. On the other hand, if you compare it to something like having a headache or seeing spots, it's going to seem uh, more active than those uh, because you believe what you think is true. You don't beliefs don't just happen to you in the way that your headache happens to you. And the way to distinguish beliefs from headaches, I believe, is by noticing that they're the kind of thing for which the person will have his or her own reasons. And so because it's the sort of thing that the person will have their own reasons for, uh, I think that shows that it's active in the sense that headaches are not. Uh, so what do I mean by their own reasons? If I ask you why you have a headache, you're going to tell me, you're going to give me an explanation of how the headache came about. If I ask you why you believe something, you're going to give me evidence that supports the truth of your belief. So those are very different kinds of reasons that you give in response to those two questions. And there's something, I mean, it, it should be mysterious to us. It's not because it's so familiar. But if I ask you why you believe the butler did it, and if I'm thinking like a psychiatrist, or sorry, like a psychologist, and I'm asking you about a state of mind, something that's in your head, so to speak, you're going to respond to me by appeal to facts about the world that are at a very great distance from your head you know, the, the uh, footprints in the garden, the motive for revenge, that sort of thing. And so it should be puzzling why, how we make sense of this idea, how we make sense of your answer as an answer to the question of why it is that you believe. 
given that the things you appeal to have nothing to do with you. They have to do with the subject matter of the belief. Um, and you might think, well, it's still a, an ex a causal explanation because, you know, I had, there, there's some trace from the footprints in the garden all the way to my mind. Um, but that's, that's not quite true because you could be mistaken about the footprints in the garden. There could, there, maybe there were no footprints in the garden. It's still your reason is, has to do with the footprints in the garden because you take it to show that the belief is true. So that's a somewhat uh, elaborated and complicated answer to the question of, um, sorry, your question was, why do I think my methodology, which is thinking about questions of justification and responsibility add something to the psychologist's methodology. And the reason mm -hmm. is because I think that these states of mind um, are at least in part a part of our social life together and a part of our practices of asking for and requesting justification for one another. And so um, I think that what I bring is um, some expertise in thinking through those relations. Uh, and I think that does give us insight into these states of mind and our relation to our own minds. Maybe that, to that uh, paraphrase, <laughs> maybe to paraphrase and add a little gloss to it. I'm, and before we get into more particulars, well, I see a, a major normative component to your work. So how we should act for instance, given our understanding of the relationship between our agency and our attitudes or our agency over our attitudes. But I don't think that you would get that from a psychologist working in a laboratory. That's not their, their, uh, their work is more descriptive in that sense rather than uh, proscriptive and does that also seem like a distinction worth drawing? Yeah, though I um, am on record as hating the word normative. Uh, and so okay. I, uh, I avoid it, um, partly because I think it's it, it's um, it doesn't have a precise enough meaning at this point. It's become a piece of jargon that, um, that different people have different. Yeah, that's why I did try to stipulate what I meant by it in this case. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, um, so in this case, it, it's not exactly that I'm drawing on the facts about what we should do if what you mean by that is, you know, the truth of the matter about what we should do. It's um, I'm rather drawing on the fact that um, we hassle one another with respect to our own states of mind. It might be one way to put it. So um, what I sometimes say is if the way that I think about belief and intention, say, um, is that for any language using non-solipsistic rational group of creatures, so this is a little bit like the myth of Jones, for any group of creatures who are rational language using believe in other minds, and are sharing a world of limited resources. I believe any such set of creatures are gonna have need for and use for a way of thinking and talking about what others think is so, 
and what others plan to do. Uh, so I think that that's the basic um, home for the concept of belief and intention is that social role. And that social role is going to come freighted. So when people make ascriptions of belief and intention, those ascriptions are going to come freighted with expectations in both senses. So both in the sense of predictions and in the sense of demands. So the psychologist tends to work in the realm of predictions uh, and the philosopher of mind also tends to work in the realm of predictions. And so the functionalist and philosopher in philosophy of mind thinks of these states of mind as functions from patterns of, of thought and behavior to patterns of thought and behavior. I think that's, I, I don't want to take, I don't want to disagree with them about any of that. Um, but because I think the very thing they're talking about is the thing that plays this role in our life together, there's another angle or aspect to it that needs to be taken into account, which is the way in which it's the, the ascription of these states of mind supports demands, expectations in the form of demands. Demands is a little bit of a heavy word, but mm -hmm. that's why I was calling saying hassle, right? So it's, um, it's important to me that you make sense. It's important to me that I can understand what you think is true and what you plan to do. Um, mm -hmm. And so I regard um, my lane, so to speak, as knowing something about the ways in which we hassle one another, uh, so to speak. And I think that um, when you think about that, you'll see that it doesn't work well to model these states of mind as things that we are passive with respect to. Or even, and this is a paper I'm working on now, uh, even things that we're active with respect to only intermittently, even, even as things that we um, sort of create and then store, like we store documents on a computer. I think our, the way in which we understand one another and ourselves requires that they are um, our ongoing commitments and so our ongoing activities. Well, that was really helpful. So I'm glad that I used the word normative to, <laughs> to, to draw that out of you. But I'd, I'd like now to turn to the book you're working on, Minds mm -hmm. That Matter. Mm -hmm. And so in the general population, uh, the problem of free will, in so much as the general population thinks about it, is construed, I'd say, as maybe like as a, a problem of physics and consciousness so more specifically the question is whether if the laws of physics are deterministic are all of our actions somehow outside of our control in the sense that they've been determined long before we were born mm -hmm. but lately you've been writing about the problem of free will and moral responsibility and i wonder how this is related to the problem of determinism as I just framed it and whether or not it's sort of like orthogonal to that problem? Yeah, good. Um, so, so most people, when you first tell them um, about Newton's physics, for example, um, mm -hmm. uh, will think that the implication means that we're not free, that we, um, that if 
the past and uh, laws of nature imply um, one future, then somehow what we do doesn't matter and uh, the future is not up to us. Um, I think that's an error to think that, 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 that the implication of determinism is that what we do doesn't matter and that the future is not up to us. Um, it's a little, it takes a little bit to say why it's an error. Um, but the first part of my book um, is to try to say that uh, the error is about our notion of control, that we think mm -hmm. that um, what it is, that our notion of what it is to control something comes from our experience of acting, um, that to act is to bring things to be as you would have them to be. Um, and so we think that in order to control something, I need to be able to think about it now and bring it to be as I would have it to be. I think that notion of control, once you move it into the mind, um, sets up a regress because um, you can't, in order to bring your decision to be as you would have it to be, you would have to make a prior decision about how you want your decision to be. But then in order to make that de prior decision to be as you would have to have it to be, you would have to make yet a prior decision. And so if the only notion of control we have is the one we um, pick up from our sense of what it is to control actions and objects in our, our environment, then it will seem to us that we don't have any control over our own mind. And, uh, and that I think is the root of our sense that uh, determinism uh, is a problem for our freedom. Hmm. Um, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so yeah, so in the, in the beginning of the introduction to this book, you write that the problem of free will is a philosophical problem created by certain philosophical pictures to which we are prone. Is that what you just, just described, like the high level view of this philosophical picture that pushes us toward? Uh, it's uh, it's the, the high level view of the first half of it. Yeah. Okay. So can you, I mean, you, you have a number of examples in the introduction, but maybe give me some some concrete examples of how our sense of control over the environment uh, objects in the environment differs from our sense of control over our thoughts and beliefs yeah good um so if you want to control your um coffee cup you're going to think about your coffee cup and uh, you're going to have an idea of what you mean to do with it. And then you're going to execute that idea in an action. So you're going to have a committal representation, which you're going to realize uh, in action. And the committal representation we could call an intention. Um, mm -hmm. And so you control the coffee cup to the extent that um, it reflects what you had in mind. Right. Um, 
if you so think- I have an idea about moving my can of Coke and then I move it and right. And the, and your action control. is successful to the extent that what happens is what you meant to have happen. And the, your action or the object is in your control to the extent that your actions with respect to it are will or would be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some states of mind that we, um, that are actions like that. So if I say, um, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, um, you can respond by imagining something. Or if I say, picture a, a red circle, you can respond by, in your mind, picturing a red circle. And in those cases, again, I think you have a, an idea of what you want to do and you do it. But when you're thinking about whether the butler did it, you don't first form a representation of which belief to form and then form it. Because in order to do that, you would have had to first decide which belief to form. (laughs) Um, And it's rather the case that in um, answering the question of whether the butler did it, you look to the world, you look to the butler and his crime and the evidence there and come to a conclusion about whether the butler did it, yes or no. Um, so there is there is no space in there for the execution of an intention to believe. Right. Um, and yet that belief is up to you, I want to say. Um, in what sense is it up to you? Well, you answered the question of whether the butler did it. That question, like any question, has two possible answers, yes or no. Uh, that, that question, like any yes or no question, has two possible answers, yes or no. Um, you settled on one of them. Uh, in settling on one of them, you therein made something true of your mind. That is to say, in thinking about things at a spatial temporal distance from yourself, the butler and his crime, you make something true of yourself right now. Um, and as soon as you change your mind about whether the butler did it, it will no longer be true of you that you believe. So in all those ways, your belief is up to, to you. Now, it turns out that all of the things I just said can be true, even if determinism is true. Mm-hmm. So that's how it, how it relates uh, back to my initial question about determinism. Yeah. And just to um, clarify again, though, before the sort of solution you, you gestured at, the sort of problem of free will that we've been discussing is whether or not we're free to control our own beliefs and other similar mental states when prima facie, it appears that they're not up to us the same way that uh, certain other mental actions might be. Yes. And uh, where, where, so you just said it's the question of whether we're free to control. I'd simplify that and say it's the question of whether we're in control of, or the sense in which we're in control. Um, because people mean different things by free uh, and, and mm-hmm. un- unhelpfully, um, some people use the word free in such a way that it's um, pretty much tautologous that if um, determinism is true, then we're not free. Uh, and I mm-hmm. don't want to argue about which word we should use. I want to say 
there's a there's an important way in which we are in control of our own states of mind um, that does not depend on the truth or falsity of determinism. And and in order to um, soften the ground for that a little bit, I think it's important to point out that um, if you're worried by the idea that determinism might be true and thereby you might be out of, not in control of your mind or your actions, it's worth pointing out that denying determinism and allowing for indeterminism won't by itself put you back in control. Denying determinism and allowing for indeterminism opens up the natural processes to chance or, or makes them merely probabilistic. But the fact that something is probable or possible doesn't mean it's up to me. In order for it to be up to me, uh, what happens has to depend in some way on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and when things are indeterministic, that just means that what happens is chancy. It doesn't mean it's up to me. So if you're worried by determinism, um, going to indeterminism won't help unless you think of us as immaterial or somehow able to intervene in the indeterministic world in those moments of chance. And if you don't think of us as um, extra natural in that way, um, then what you're going to need is a way to understand how, whether the world is deterministic or indeterministic, we have some control over what happens. And that's what I am hoping to identify by identifying first the way in which we're in control of our own states of mind, including our intentions, and then thereby how we're in control over our actions and objects in our environment. And before we go into, again, in more detail, how we are in control of these things, is this conception of the problem or the source of the problem, uh, our control over our, our mental states of free will, is that original with your work or is that something that people, other philosophers or thinkers have already identified and, and tried to deal with? Um, if it's original to me, it's only the sort of way of putting it that's original. Um, uh, and I'm not even sure if that's so. Um, but my work is, um, heavily influenced by, um, earlier people thinking about the problem of free will and moral responsibility who ended up... Uh, being labeled real self views. So people like Harry Frankfurt and Gary Watson and Charles Taylor, who were thinking about um, the way in which the complexity of our minds might um, reveal a kind of complicated relation we stand in to our own minds, such that we can be held responsible for them. So, um, so, so they don't tend to use the word control and they, uh, there's a lot about what they say that I 
leave behind. So I don't think the idea of a real self is helpful, for example. Um, but, uh, but broadly speaking, um, my, my work is sort of a continuance and development of that, but kind of with a pretty significant um, stripping down and, and shifting. Um, mm. Before we get too much further, though, I should say that the, the, the way the book is set up is it's about the problem of um, free will and moral responsibility. Um, and the idea is that um, uh, if we're, sorry, where, where the problem about free will is a problem about determinism. So the problem of free will and determinism is, is in there. But um, uh, the first half of it is about these issues we've been talking about, about control and the mind and what it is to be in control of ourselves. Uh, but I don't think that even if you grant all my solutions, sorry, even if you grant all that I say about that half, that you will thereby necessarily be ready to grant that we're responsible. So I, I think we have to come at the problem from, from both directions. Um, mm -hmm. So I wanted to just flag that before we got too much further in case anyone was worried about responsibility. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have plenty of questions about responsibility to come. I just wanted to exhaust my uh, curiosity about the free will portion first. So you talked about the real self, but I, you also mentioned, and maybe one of what I'm about, to, one of the following items I'm about to mention corresponds to the real self view, but you wrote that some have hoped to address this problem by appeal to reflection or to the reflexive nature of self-consciousness. Is that the real self view? No, it's a different view. Um, oh. uh, sorry. Well, actually, no, I take that back. Um, the, the, uh, the real self view does often appeal to reflection and the reflective nature of self-consciousness. Okay. And that, and then that others hope to appeal to two standpoints or points of view from which we think about ourselves and the world. Mm -hmm. But you write that neither of these um, strategies satisfies uh, the problem. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering just w where these, what they are, and, and where they fall short. Good. Um, yeah. So the. Um, what I have in mind there when I talk about um, reflection, um, there's an idea that we're in res we're responsible where other creatures are not, because we can step back, think about our own inclinations, our own desires, our own perceptions, um, call them into question and then um, commit to them. So that ability to step back and think about ourselves, um, it's pointed out, uh, puts us in a certain sort of control over ourselves. Uh, and uh, Chris Gorskard has the sort of um, standard statement of this view. Um, but that, that does show up in the real self view of Harry Frankfurt, something like it shows up as well in, um, in Gary Watson and um, Charles Taylor. Uh, so the thought there is that we are in control of ourselves 
because we can get that reflective distance. Well, that reflective distance, that looks to me like ordinary action, right? I can think about myself and I can take action to bring myself to be as I would have myself to be. I think that's going to get you into that regress that we talked about earlier. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think that that's the right way to understand um, how we're in control of ourselves. Um, an alternative um, is an alternative way of thinking about the problem of free will and determinism is this two standpoints view. Um, it's, it's pretty tricky. So the two standpoints view, the, the originator of that is Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant um, has a pretty um, amazing project that I'm now going to give you my um, very short and um, uh, sketchy and inadequate summary. Well, thank you of, for that, though. Um, so, um, uh, and the, the the Kantians will cringe, um, but I think it. I think it's a. I think what I'm about to say is is accurate enough for a first pass. Right? So Kant in the um, in his first critique, uh, his stated ambition is to uh, make room for God, freedom, and immortality in the world as described by the new science, by Newton's science. So he sees um, the new science and its possibility of determinism, and he's distressed by it. Um, and he is, his explicit task in his critical philosophy is to make room for um, God, freedom, and immortality, which doesn't seem to, for which there doesn't seem to be room in the world as described by the new science. And the way he does this um, is wild. So um, to, to bring it into view, remember the distinction between primary and secondary qualities. So secondary qualities are qualities like color and sound. So when you think about color, the color of the wall behind me, say, which I think is kind of yellow, um, that's the result of an interaction between the surface properties of the wall light and my visual system. Um, and when you think about sound, the, the phenomenology of sound is the result of an interaction between um, some vibrating surface, the sound waves set up in the air, my eardrum and my mind, my brain and my mind. Which is to say, if you're thinking about like, what the surface of the wall is like in itself or apart from any visual system, it's hard to think about that. So, as a, so those are secondary qualities. Primary qualities um, are things like weight and length, uh, which were thought to objects were to have in themselves apart. They don't depend on our, and our sense and our sense modalities. Uh, so um, Descartes and I think Locke had this distinction between primary and secondary qualities. Um, it's the source of the funny, you know, the, the joke, uh, if a tree were to fall in a forest and no one was there to hear it, would it make a sound? That sounds like a stupid question, but it's actually 
a pretty interesting question about the secondary quality of sound. Okay, so with that distinction in mind, um, Kant, uh, in effect, he doesn't really do this, but in effect says, uh, um, okay, I want you to do something for me. Uh, I want you to um, imagine the absence of space. I want you to imagine no space. And he's like, nope. Very difficult. Can't do it, can you? All you got is empty space. Right? Then he's like, okay, next up, I want you to imagine the absence of time. No time. He's like, nope, can't do it. All you have is the absence of change. You can't get the absence of duration. So his wild idea is that space and time are themselves contributions to the world of our mind. And so the entirety of the world described by science, the entirety of the empirical world, are secondary qualities. Everything is the result of the interaction between the world as it is in itself and our sensibility and, and, and modes of understanding. Okay. So suddenly, by doing that, he, on the one hand, has he thinks, established a firm foundation for science because he's convinced that our minds are the same and so that science can proceed um, in, the, in its investigation of the world as we experience it, and made room for mystery. Right? He's, set up, he's now set up an in-principle barrier uh, for science. S science now cannot tell us about how things are in themselves. Um, and so Kant's view gets called uh, transcendental idealism. The world is the world as science describes it is, as he would put it, empirically real, but um, transcendentally uh, ideal. So that there's a sense in which the way it is in itself is um, is not the way we experience it. Uh, okay, so once he has that set up, he then goes about trying to solve a bunch of philosophical problems um, in what he calls the antinomies. And one of these is the problem of free will. And the way you solve a problem in the antinomy is to say, well, when you think about it empirically, you have one conclusion, but when you think about it um, as it is in itself, you don't get that conclusion. And so that's exactly what he wants to say about free, free will. He wants to say that when you look at the empirical world, it, what you see is a de determined, um, that, that human action is determined and he thinks, now and here he and I disagree, he thinks that therefore we're not free. Right? He, he thinks that determinism is incompatible with freedom. Uh, based on the new science? Based on the new science. Um, okay. Empirically speaking, like only if you sort of mm -hmm. contain yourself to the empirical world. But he thinks 
Um, we can also, through the use of pure reason, where importantly, pure reason is not tainted by our sensibility and categories of understanding, we can, through the use of pure, pure reason, um, deduce that we're free. But we're not, but our freedom, it doesn't appear to us in the empirical world. Our freedom is what he would call noumenal. It's uh, independent of the empirical world. Um, so that is a two standpoints view um, of, of freedom. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's called a kind of compatibilism um, because strictly speaking, it does allow that um, determinism is true and we are free. But it's I, I think it's um, can be misleading to call it a kind of compatibilism, <laughs> because in fact the view is that these two things are, so to speak, so incompatible. <laughs> you know, one is in the one is about the empirical world, one is about things in themselves. There's so they can't even be brought into the same frame in order to contradict one another. They're just they're about different realms. Um, okay. So, so that's a, that's a two standpoints kind of compatibilism. Um, and, uh, and insofar as, um, if you want to go all the way with Kant to transcendental idealism, I, I think you can make it work. Um, I don't want to go all the way to Kant to transcendental idealism, um, and there's been a lot of more recent attempts to um, to make it work by appeal only to um, conceptual frames or um, ways of thinking or something like that. And those I don't think um, succeed uh, simply because I don't think. So sometimes people will say, well, um, when you think about the world empirically, it looks one way, but when you think about the world practically, and so now the practical is taking over for the noumenal, right? When you think about the world practically, it seems another way. And those two points of view, the, the point of view of science and the point of view of action or the, um, the scientific image and the manifest image or something like that, 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 that those two things won't, um, won't, come together in a way that such that they could even contradict one another. And that's the part I don't think is true. <laughs> I think our, um, our practical reasoning makes use of empirical science all the time. Our empirical science can encompass our practical reasoning. I, I don't see any in principle division between these in the way that there is that strong in principle division between the empirical and um, the phenomenal and the noumenal in Kant. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was really, really helpful. I really appreciated that a lot. Now, before, before though, we turn to back to your account and moral responsibility, one, one part of the two point view that you just described that I didn't, quite get so maybe i'm asking you to repeat yourself mm -hmm. but why it is that we are according to kant noumenally free what substantiates that wing of the the two points 
Um, yeah, so all I said was that we can, by the use of our pure reason, um, arrive at that conclusion. Um, right. So, uh, and and here I'm going to um, here I'm going to need to defer in some way to the Kantian. Um, but my understanding of um, at least his, I mean, he has this idea of um, the way in which you know and that which makes it true, right? So the the, the ratio ascendi and the ratio cognoscendi. So um, the way in which we know, my understanding of that is um, from an, an argument in the second critique, um, wh which is roughly we know that we're under obligation. We know that we're duty bound. And uh, if we're duty bound, we have to be free. So we know that we're free. So that is to say the argument as I understand it makes use of a slogan that is now gotten out in the world uh, and has a life of its own. And the slogan is ought implies can. So um, it, it, most of the time people now talk about ought implies can, they're actually employing it in the contrapositive. They're actually wanting to argue that because there's a lack of ability, there's no obligation. Um, and in fact, most people who are now using it are thinking about blame. So they wanna say, because there's a lack of ability, you're excused or there's no blame. But that's not, I mean, ought implies can is, runs in the other direction. Uh, I mean, sorry, they're obviously logically equivalent, but but in its original employment, I believe Kant was arguing from our knowledge through the use of our pure reason of our duty to our knowledge of our freedom. Hmm. Okay. And so again, returning to your work, we have, or you've described two senses of control. There's the sense of control we have over the the Coke cans in our life, uh, the ordinary sense of control. And then there is, I think, the evaluative sense of control, which is the sort of control we have over our beliefs and other similar mental states. Mm -hmm. And this is just sort of a, a tangential question before we, we get to the moral responsibility side of things. But have you thought much at all about just pondering, not necessarily in a philosophical sense, why it is that we don't have the ordinary sense of control over our beliefs? And I mean, I, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is an evolutionarily adaptive reason, like our beliefs are at least seem to be forced upon us by the way we perceive the world. And if we were to believe things that were incong incongruous with the way the world is, I mean, it would sure, surely not be evolutionarily advantage or re reproductively advantageous, I mean. Mm -hmm. No, I've thought a lot about it. I've, I've actually written, I mean, I, I have a couple different papers on uh, believing at will and- uh, um, Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah, and it, um, so it so it's not so. I do think we enjoy ordinary control with respect to our beliefs. I do think we can 
take action to bring our beliefs as we would have them to be. Um, it's, um, it's just that we're very constrained in doing so, right? So, so anything, anything in our environment, including our own minds, that interacts in predictable ways with the rest of our environment is something we can, under the right circumstances, enjoy ordinary control over. So if I wanted to believe that the lights are off in my office, I, I can get up and turn them off and then I'll believe it. Right? Uh, if I want to believe, let's use an example from Tom Kelly, if I want to believe that my children are home safe, I can place a phone call and providing all is well, I will come to believe it. Uh, if I want to avoid learning the conclude the the end of a movie, um, I can pay attention to the spoiler alerts. So we can exercise ordinary control over our beliefs. Um, it's but our doing so is constrained by the fact that our beliefs are our answer to the question of what is so. Um, so the thought is that. Um, because our beliefs are the same as our answer to the question of what is so, the ways in which we can control them in the ordinary way have, has to take that into account and is constrained by it. Okay, th that makes sense. So as you started talking about, uh, well, as you gave the example of turning the lights out, I was going to say, well, I can't just change my mind that the sky is blue, mm -hmm. but I, I could if I had a huge budget and could right. turn it black or right. something like that. Right. Okay. Or if you could, you know, take a hallucinogen or if you could, you know, the, um, put yourself in some sci-fi situation uh, and, and induce amnesia or if you, right. So, so then, so then it can seem like, um, well, but so our, the, the fact that we can't believe um, whatever, we want to believe um, can seem like a shortcoming, right? It can seem like some sort of failure uh, 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 of our powers, but I've argued in a couple different places, it's not a shortcoming. Uh, it's just the um, result of the fact that um, we're capable both of answering questions about what's so and thinking about our own answers. And for any creature capable both of both answering questions about what's so and thinking about its own answers, um, there's going to be the possibility that you notice that your answer is inconvenient. And so you want to have a different one. But, but that's not um, a sh the fact that you can't change your answer um, in order to make it more convenient isn't a shortcoming in your ability to answer questions. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a limitation in your ability to manage the world, but it's, um, it's, not a, you know, it's not an unusual kind of limitation in your, abil in your ability to manage the world. So just at a high level, again, before we get into some specifics, where does moral responsibility fit into the picture of freedom and control that we've been discussing? Um, so I think it's, uh, well, so sorry, I think responsibility is right at the center of the picture. Uh, moral responsibility is a, 
is a subset of responsibility and I think it's um, less central. Um, uh, but a thing that I think of as a kind of responsibility, which I call answerability, I think is absolutely central. So answerability is you're answerable when it um, makes sense for me to ask you for your reasons. And that, that's the thing we talked about earlier. Um, so it, I think anytime you believe, it makes sense for me to ask you, why do you believe looking for reasons that you take to show the, be the belief to be true? Um, and to say it makes sense for me to ask you for your reasons doesn't mean that you have to have them, doesn't mean that your belief would be unjustified without them, but the belief is the kind of thing for which that request has application. And I think that's also true of your intentions. I think it's true of your many of your emotions. Um, and so that and that that form of responsibility, answerability, I think um, is part and parcel of the sense in which these states of mind are active, the sense in which they're up to us, uh, and the sense in which we're they're in our control. Hmm. Maybe before we go any further, it would be helpful to discuss a confusion you point to between what it means to be responsible and what the conditions must be like for one to, in fact, be responsible. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, walk me through the distinction here? And I, I mean, maybe along the way, we can disambiguate some of the less philosophically salient colloquial uses of responsible. Yeah, good. Um, so the so taking the first, the second first, um, the responsible as an English word is used in lots of ways um, that are interrelated, but not the target of concern when it comes to free will and responsibility. So a lot of times when we say responsible, we just mean um, has an obligation or like I'm responsible for feeding the dog means it's my obligation, my duty, my job to feed the dog. Sometimes we mean when we say someone's a responsible person that they're very conscientious and trustworthy. Um, sometimes when we say use responsible, we just mean is the cause of. Um, sometimes we mean is at fault for where that needn't be a moral issue, but you know, uh, some mistake you made ended up uh, causing some mess. And so you're responsible for the mess. Uh, but the one that's at issue for free will and uh, moral responsibility is tied up in some way with um, something like criticism, evaluation, um, sanction, punishment, blame, praise, right? So that when we say someone is a responsible adult, uh, we mean, you know, that, that they can in some way be held accountable for what they do. Um, and when we worry that um, if determinism is true, we're not responsible, that's the sense of responsibility that vague, but that I've only vaguely gestured at um, that, uh, that people have in mind. If like me, you're teaching a class all the time on this material, um, uh, you notice that when people think about what it is to be responsible, a lot of times they they simply think about the conditions under which uh, you would and wouldn't be responsible. So if 
um, if it's the case that um, you wouldn't be responsible if you couldn't have done otherwise, then they might think, well, to be responsible is to is to be able to do otherwise. Right? Um, and uh, and I think that's to confuse the necessary conditions on something for uh, its nature. So um, and likewise, one might think, well, I'm not responsible unless I'm in some sense free or in some sense in control of things. And so then it's easy to slide and think, well, what it is to be responsible is to be free or to be in control of things. But, um, you know, that doesn't follow. Uh, there's a difference between something that has to be true in order for something else to be true and the nature of the thing of the second thing. Um, and so um, I actually think when we're thinking about the problem of free will and moral responsibility, um, a lot of times I think people are, are actually thinking about something like um, being rightly subject to punishment or sanction or rightly subject to blame or praise understood as something like punishment and reward. Um, and uh, is this the merited consequences conception of yes. responsibility? Yeah. In the, well, okay. sorry. Um, gosh, it's been a little bit since I've read my own introduction. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I, I think... don't remember things I've written last week. <laughs> um, I've been reworking some things and that version of the introduction uh, is pretty old. Um, do, do I say, do, do I have a, a, the merited consequences and then do I set out something like the penalty, the penalty conception or the prize and penalty? Conception? No, I don't think so. I think it, you can, you contrast merited consequences with mattering. Oh, okay. Then yes, it is the merited consequences conception. <laughs> Perfect. Um, uh, yeah, and I and I do think that um, that there's for sanctions to be fair, it's typically the case that you need an opportunity to have a fair opportunity to have avoided the sanction, uh, and. So you could you have a spot there to be worried about the opportunity to do otherwise in fairness. And I think right there is one source of the worry about free will and moral responsibility. Um, and so the first chapter of the second half of the book is to try to um, address that worry. But um, I think the more important uh, piece, the more important conception of responsibility is not being a, a apt target of sanction and punishment, um, because I don't think that, you know, ordinary adults in our, in our day-to-day -day lives um, have much business sanctioning or punishing one another. Um, right. So instead, I think what... Um, is important is what I have ended up calling responsibility as mattering. So, um, and this is following the work of Peter Strawson uh, and his, he has a, 
um, paper called Freedom and Resentment that I, a couple of years ago, um, put out a book, uh, a book on that article. Uh, oh, wow. So the, um, the, I, So what I think is more important is the idea of responsibility as mattering, uh, where that idea um, is helped by some ideas that came come from Peter Strawson who, uh, and his article, Freedom and Resentment. So there, Strawson uh, noticed a distinction between different classes of attitudes we have in, uh, in response to what he called the quality of one another's wills. And, uh, and so he, he identified what are called reactive attitudes um, as uh, opposed to more objective attitudes. Uh, so it, to get that distinction in view, um, if um, you were to walk out uh, in the morning and find that there's uh, you've driven over a nail and your tire is flat, you're going to be maybe um, angry, maybe disappointed, maybe frustrated. If you walk out in the morning and see that someone has slashed your tires, you're going to be indignant and resentful. So um, anger and disappointment are not themselves reactive attitudes. Indignation and resentment are. Um, similarly, if, um, if you have to walk across an unsteady board, across a, 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 a gap, and it holds you up, you might be relieved. If somebody steadies you, you'll be grateful. So um, relief uh, is not a reactive attitude. Gratitude is a reactive attitude. So Strassen noticed that there's a class of, of attitudes that we have in response to the quality of will of another person. But it's also the case that in some circumstances, we suspend or modify those. We don't have those reactive attitudes. So um, if you thought somebody um, shoved you and then you learn that they actually lost their balance, you will switch out of resentment to some other non-reactive attitude. Um, but similarly, um, if you learn that the uh, person that you thought um, shoved you was, you know, a, a toddler, you might also shift out of your reactive attitude. Um, so these are attitudes that we have, he thinks, he notes, towards, you know, responsible adults. Uh, and so I think there's an important sense of responsibility that is being such that the quality of your wills towards others matters to other people. So that's a form of responsibility that, um, that wild animals don't have. Wild animals can, you know, mean us harm, but we won't resent them. Um, we won't be grateful to them. We don't stand in the right kind of relation with them to make those attitudes appropriate or apt. 
Um, likewise, um, when people are suffering from certain very severe um, uh, mental disease, when people are very, very young, uh, you know, these, when, when people are having a really bad day, these um, attitudes we sometimes think aren't apt. And so we stop holding the person responsible. So, um, so I think that there's a sense of responsibility as mattering, which is not the same as, you know, being open to punishment or sanction. Uh, right. And it's that, that, and it's that responsibility as mattering that I want to say, if we recenter our notion of responsibility to make, to focus on that one, we can put it together with the idea of evaluative control. Right, right. And then when we put those two things together, we avoid our worries about free will. Can you, that's, that's exactly where I was going to go next. Can you make more explicit the connection between evaluative control and responsibility as mattering and explain sort of why they sync up together so well to deal with the problem of free will and responsibility? Yeah. So, um, so what we're, what, what's mattering to us and responsibility is mattering is, is, uh, what I've been calling the quality of another person's will, um, whereby will there, I do not mean. So sometimes by will people have in mind kind of this, um, this, um, brute faculty of choice. Right. So it's a, sometimes people think you have your whole, you have all your beliefs and your desires and your values and your judgments and everything else. And then all of that filters down to something distinct, your will, which then makes a choice. And I, I do not think that that's the right picture. So by will, I just mean all of those parts of your mind that come together um, when you, when you arrive at decisions and conclusions about what's true, all of those parts of your mind that you draw upon when you answer questions. So it includes your beliefs, your values, your desires, your, all of that. Um, well, all of those things I think are answers to various questions. Um, which is to say all of, so, so your own will is in your evaluative control. Um, what people are responding to when, um, they respond to you as someone whose will matters is something that's up to you in the sense that it's in your evaluative control. And the way that they're, I mean, what they're doing when they respond, when they take you to matter is, um, having these attitudes, which are in their evaluative control. So the picture is that you have the, the title of the, the working title of the book is Minds That Matter. Uh, and the picture is that you have um, these minds. Uh, so, so these collections of ways of seeing the world, takes on the world, what's true, important, worthwhile, all of which could, can be understood as um, in, evaluative, in, in the, the subjects evaluative control. Um, interacting with other minds, um, and, um, and mattering, taking it, you know, be, being of importance to those other minds. Um, 
And all of that, I think, um, uh, none of that um, is threatened by facts about determinism. Well, we we have come back full circle, I guess, to determinism again, mm -hmm. and then going further back to my use of the word normative, uh -huh. how then, now that we've put all of this together, does your account, if it does anything like this at all, suggest that we should act when bearing in mind this um, theory of free will and responsibility? Um, yeah, my, 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 the material that I'm putting in this book, uh, actually doesn't have a lot, doesn't have much to say about, um, ethics understood as, you know, how, how should we treat one another? Um, it, it, it has a lot to say about how we should understand our relations to one another. Um, I do think that um, one main upshot of it is that we should treat one another with a bit more grace. So I do think that we have in our culture and, uh, and in our minds, um, a sense of what people deserve when they act freely in a sense that we are not free. Right. So I, I do think that there's a kind of, uh, in our culture, uh, a, a kind of attitude we can have towards somebody that's not just resentment in the sense of, Hey, I don't deserve that. Right. Where that's about me. Um, I don't deserve that. Uh, but resentment in the sense that I don't deserve that. And if you had paid attention and tried a harder, you could have avoided that, right? Like where it's, where it's a little more about the other person. Um, and sometimes where people sort of pack in the idea that everyone can at each moment avoid wrongdoing. Well, I don't think it's true that everyone can at each moment avoid wrongdoing. Kant thought that was true. That was that was the kind of freedom he thought that duty um, entailed. Um, I I don't think that. I think that um, we are. Uh, I, sometimes I appropriate the the term original sin for this. I think that uh, we can find ourselves in positions where we're unable to do what we nonetheless are morally required to do. Um, and, um, and I think that's part of the human condition <laughs> and because that's part of the human condition, I think it's important for us to recognize, um, that this more condemnatory, what I call condemnatory, this, um, way of relating to people as though they could always avoid wrongdoing is mistaken. Um, mm -hmm. so, so I think that that's an important um, shift in our thinking about how we relate to one another. Uh, you know, it's the, it, it's, it's a, ex, you know, extremely philosophically elaborated, uh, version of the thought there, but for the grace of God, go I. Hmm. Um, uh, and so I think, uh, 
I think one upshot of the book is to um, to put front and center the the, the call for more of that attitude. Um, but uh, and, and the idea that you know uh, um, this this um, condemnatory penalizing uh, is not is is out of place. Um, but other than that, I mean, so, so, so each of those is, is to say, um, if you thought we were free spirits inhabiting the material world, uh, like angels from elsewhere, and so always able to call on some deep, um, reserve and do right, then you could be harsher to people than I think is called for given the fact that we're not like that. Um, but that's pretty much the only um, substantive upshot of, of, um, of this book. Well, that's a very important substantive upshot. And I think it's also a great note on which to end. So thanks so much for talking with me, Pamela. And I really look forward to the release of Minds That Matter. Thank you. Me too. Hold on, geeselings. Before you go, please uh, like subscribe, follow if you haven't already, smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.